In T-minus three, two, one, we begin the fun. Touring our way through the NBA from that big, big apple to the place by the bay. Is your mind buckled in? Cause it's time to begin. Seiko and his friends are doing it again. The Hang Time Podcast is the spot, so sit back, relax, cause the show's about to drop. Welcome to the Hang Time Podcast. I'm your host, Seiko Smith, here in Atlanta. Got a special show lined up for you, as always, here on the Hang Time Podcast. Joining us today, a timely topic if ever there was one, tanking to the top. It's the Philadelphia 76ers and the most audacious process in the history of professional sports. The author, Jerome Weissman, award-winning NBA writer, Bleacher Report contributor, has penned to me one of the, the best palace intrigue books we've had in recent memory about an NBA team and just how they were trying to navigate themselves from a lottery bound team on a regular basis into a championship contender. As you well know, the process has not gone according to a solid, steady plan in Philadelphia. But Jerome Weitzman gives us a really good in-depth inside look behind the curtain at the process in Philadelphia. And he joins us right now on the Hangtime Podcast. It's not often that I find myself this frustrated after reading a fantastic book. And uh, Tank It to the Top is is by far one of the best books I've read here recently. Uh, it's the story of the Philadelphia 76ers and, and what is titled as the most audacious process in the history of professional sports. Jerome Weitzman is the author, NBA writer from Bleacher Report. And uh, listen, I'm, I'm serious. I got I got done reading this and I was I had to write down like who all I was upset with, like how many different people. Uh, are, are now on my list. It, it's it's fascinating to me the story itself. Just doing something this wild, um, but but when you're writing this, are you going through those same emotions, trying to sort out who's the hero, who's the villain, you know, and, and mm-hmm. how to separate all these different people who are involved? Yeah, I mean, from uh, the way, yes, and the, like, yeah, or for the, my biggest experience was, which I think it's it's. It's similar. Um, it, it came out in different ways. Like I would go to my wife, you know, oh, not another thing. I can't have any more things, right? Like the Jimmy Butler trip. Like just no more, no more, right? That's kind of which is like there's just so, there's so much, right? Or like Jimmy Butler or Markel, or just whatever things you forget about. Um, yeah, it's kind of like we were, we were joking, right? Because before you asked me, you know, who's this, and I said the answer is yeah. Who's the villain, whatever? And I said the answer is yes, right? <laughs> but like, it's kind of. I don't know. It's kind of I, what I'm proud of, and what I what I enjoy most about the book is I feel like it is a good glimpse of how things work in the NBA, just like you know, power and players and coaches, relationships and all that. And I find it, I found the process for me doing this just illuminating in terms of oh, so this is like this is I don't know, Kyrie, but this is how bleep really happens. This is how stuff really gets done in this league, and these are how decisions right. are made. So. Yeah, so it's, it's surprising, and then I guess maybe not surprising. I don't know. You have powerful, rich ego people with egos and talented, and this is just what happens when you throw them all into one ecosystem. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And this is a – I can't think of a more opportune time to, to have this book come out, too, when you look at the current state of the Sixers. Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, the, the process himself, um, are on the shelf. The Sixers are kind of a mess right now trying to figure out who and what they are. Um. Brett Brown is is in the crosshairs, of course. Elton mm-hmm. Brand is at the center of whatever they're trying to get done. 
But uh, you're wrong. Then I, I I went back and I started charting. I was like, all right, well, let me think. The the core group of players that they had that could have been the nucleus of this team. Um, and this is just I'm really curious to hear. Yeah, I want to hear your list. Okay. Yeah. Um. I mean, so they went through Michael Carter Williams, who was a rookie of the year. Nerlens Noel. Markel Fultz, Ben Simmons, ben, Joel Embiid, and then Dario Saric. I was thinking, like, if if you had if you could snatch a fantasy young core group of players out of thin air, what would that look like for the Sixers? And I came up with those names. Just the, that's just the start. And I thought, not that's not to mention Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris, Landry Shamit, or some of the other guys who actually have passed through the locker room in Philly. Um, what was there? Do you think there was ever a chance that they get this right when you when you take such a bold step in trying to tank? There's no other word for it. When you're trying to tank, did you have to sacrifice some of these players that that maybe could have been good fits there, but but for the the sake of the greater good of what you're trying to get done, you had to burn right. through some of these players. So it's funny because like, and right, so you read the book, right? So you'll know, like the book is far from an apology for Sam Hinkie. Like it's not a book. It's not like, I'm not positioning him as Billy Dean in Moneyball, right? I mean, the no. system, I give him some, it's complimentary parts, but also it's far from an apology. But I do, all that being said, I do think that, man, it would have been interesting to see if he would have been allowed to see, like st- stick it through a little more, like what the, because then I think the roster looks closer to what you just outlined, right? Like, yeah, he, he, yeah, they're not pulling the trigger on a lot of these trades may, until until they're ready, right? Until maybe later on. Um, like somebody else asked me recently, like, what do you think the roster would look like right now? Like, and how how would they have made the Al Horford move or whatever? And I was saying, I mean, I have no right. idea. It's like a sliding doors thing. Like, what would Sam Hinkie do if he came <laughs> in last year? If he was kind of brought back, like, I, what, what would he have done? I don't know. Um, you know, it's interesting, right? Like, going back, looking back, and I don't think I mentioned, I don't know if I focused a ton on this in the book, but just as I've been thinking about this stuff more, I think that Boston mm. series, the first year they lost to Boston in the playoffs, um, I think right. that looking back is like a fascinating inflection point for where they kind of felt like they needed to make some big time decisions. The roster wasn't good enough. They had to go quicker, faster. Sarich is, they don't believe in him. They don't believe in Covington, all these things. Um, looking back, I like, I think that in, in five, 10 years, you might look back at that series as one of those crossroads where it pushed them in a different direction. And to be honest, it looks like not a great one right now. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's such a fascinating topic. We, we rarely examine stuff like this, so close to it happening you know normally you people take um a you know a stretch of years to to give it time and let it breathe and look back at it but i think it, i think it's awesome that you did it now because to me you lose some of this intrigue 10 years from now you know what i mean like you the I stuff do. about brian colangelo is just mind-boggling um i don't know if he was trying to you know sabotage whatever hinky had done or if he was trying to you know jumpstart his pro I don't I don't even get what his motives might have been and did do you glean anything from all the people you talked to and I know you interviewed close to 200 people um for this book I mean do you do you get a sense of what his motivations were when he went in there and did the things he did 
I so a couple of talking to people and then finding him digging up old clips of like when he was hired in Phoenix and him talk like back like whatever nineteen ninety whatever it was right when he was like twenty nine and Jerry hires him and him kind of talking about like there's these old quotes from him where him talking about yeah I'm aware of the nepotism charge it bothers me or him going to work in real estate for a year you know outside after Phoenix to try to. It's we're going through that stuff and then having someone tell me uh, that, which we can laugh about it a little bit, right? That he always thought he got railroaded for the Andrea Bargnani collection. Like he thought that was a good pick, right? And he thought Toronto, he would get to it. And I think, right, exactly. But, but I think this is somebody yeah. like it does. And then we learned it from Burnergate, right? It, he's somebody who cares what people think. I really think that. And I think he's somebody whose whole life has been trying to prove himself, be it I'm more than just Jerry's kid, be it I'm, I'm good at this basketball thing. And then you drop him in and you probably couldn't have known this before, but like being the, dropping him in Philadelphia in that situation and having him, you know, making him what he's going to be a villain to many Sixers fans who love Hanky and he's going to have to prove himself to him. And like, that's the worst situation for a guy like that, a guy who's a little insecure and cares other people think and wants to prove that, no, he actually belongs and he's good at this. And I really do think that played a role in like, you know, taking the gamble on Markel Fultz. I really do in terms of, I'm going to show that like, I'm good. I'm going to put my imprints on this franchise and this is going to be, it won't yeah. just be me guiding Sam's ship. It's no Brian, Brian did this, Brian Colangelo did this. I'm more than just Jerry's kid. And I think that, that, that's, that's almost how I would explain him. Yeah. That's a perfect way to put it. I, and, and I like Brian Colangelo. I've, I've worked with him before um, yeah. on set on NBA TV. He's a nice guy. He's a smart guy. You know he comes from great stock. I have the utmost respect for Jerry Colangelo. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I don't know what it is about – you can't prepare people for the pressures that come with being a general manager, which makes Sam Hinkie's persona in this so hilarious to me um, because he clearly – had an idea of what he wanted to do and somehow or another the the fans in Philadelphia bought in which is stunning to me to still to this day remains the most mind-boggling part about this entire thing i was getting you know tweets from from sixers fans telling me how stupid i was for not understanding what they're doing <laughs> i've never i've never seen a fan base embrace losing the way the sixers fans did all in the name of the process. Like they were, they were fully on board with this, which for a, 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 a city that fancies itself the toughest for fans anywhere that, that just, I don't, I don't even understand how this happened. Like how could this possibly take hold in a city like Philly? It's funny. Cause right in a way, it's like, Say, even if you're not a fan of tanking, right? Like the idea, I joke, it's a half joke, right? In the NBA, if you have a plan and you stick to it and you're consistent with it, you're already ahead of the curve, right? It doesn't matter what the plan is, just whatever it is. Like if you stick to the plan and they had a plan and they had the opportunity, like they kind of blew it, or I'll say the franchise, you know? So even if you don't necessarily, and I know, I mean, there are plenty of good reasons why Hinky was, um, we'll say, pushed out, slash kindly shown the door, so whatever, however you want to diplomatically phrase it. Um, you know, the, uh, like they have like the fan, right. Getting fans to buy into a rebuild is the hardest thing. And it's interesting, like why didn't happen? I mean, I think, I mean, I kind of start the book with the Iverson trade and like how they, I mean, if you go back, they trade Iverson, they don't tank, they get Andre Miller, they win a bunch of games. They end up kind of being mediocre for, you know, 
10, whatever the amount of years, 9, 10, 7, 8, 9, 10 years. Yes, um, purgatory, as and, you like. I mean, as you Yeah, purgatory, about, right, purgatory. exactly. No, no question. Um, yeah, and, and the fans were born. And, like, it's funny. And then, I mean, you have all these different wins going. I mean, I focus my book on these two guys, these two podcast hosts, Spike Eskin and Mike Levine, who uh, host a yeah. podcast called The Right to Ricky Sanchez Podcast. It's hilarious. But, like, they ended up galvanizing a fan base. And, like, it allowed this pro-process kinky supporting group to have an organized voice and that just make it become a self-fulfilling cycle more people latch on they're organizing they're loud and like it's it's almost like a, it's, it's a bad comparison but it's like you know it's like the union thing right if you put a bunch of people together and you have them have one representative you know it kind of gives them more power and this became that and it, i don't yeah and i don't think i don't think the sixers um organization was aware of how of how i guess how much damage would be done by hinky being shown the door Right. I, yeah, there was a there was definitely a fervent movement uh, yes. behind Hinky and his methods, which is interesting to me. I I listened to Daryl Moore the other day. Um, he was I think he was on with Zach Lowe from Sloan, and okay. he was talking about the Rockets. He was looking back at the Rockets, some of the missteps, and it and it struck me. He was talking about the fact that well, you know, we lost, but we you know. When they lost to the Warriors in the Western Conference Finals, they had that brutal stretch where they missed like you know twenty-seven straight threes, whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he and he rationalized it, and and, right. and it reminded me of why I'm so frustrated with the analytics community because they're gonna in, in a world where we deal in bottom line everything. You win or you lose. You know, you you're up or you're down, and then you get into these analytics discussions. And there's all this gray area that's allowed, and I, I've ne- I think that's the one part of it that's never really connected for for a lot of fans is that you can't. You know, it's it's such a hypocritical thing to be as married to the process or or even the analytics of of the NBA in this day and age, and not look at the bottom line. You, you know the the fact that you either won or you lost. You, you know you your team succeeded or you failed. Like we don't have. We don't have that connection between the gray area and then what we all see is just the, the plain common sense bottom line. And Hinky to me falls somewhere in the middle there. Like he's he, he celebrated on one side, vilified on the other, and there's no real consensus connection about what he did. Like I, to this day, I don't know what you, do you give him credit? Do you do you blame him? I, I don't know what what kind of responsibility he bears for this whole thing. No, it's fascinating, right? Like I kind of joke, like the book should be called "Context Slash Gray Area," right? Because it just, it's just like everything is like you know you can think this, but also this, and then what happens is each side, you know, digs in more on their on their part. And I mean, it, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like politics, like that, right? In a way, but um, yes, yeah, like like you're saying right now, like the more like I hear you're saying, right? So you can you can decry, you can say small sample size, small sample size, always, but in the end, like a playoff series is a small sample size, right? And you have to win, right? And so it's like, it's at the, it's a funny thing. Like the Hinky thing, it's, so yeah, like when you get credit, they got Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, right? If you're going oversimplification, that's great. But I, I, where I come with you, and I'm, I'm probably a little more, I'll say, you know, I'll say maybe a little more analytically favorable, a little more favorable to analytics than what you're saying. But like, the, but like the draft is a great example, right? Hinky's whole thing was the draft. We need as many picks as we can, lottery picks, because the draft is a crapshoot. And therefore, I know I'm going to miss. Um, and he was admitting that and basically saying, but I want more swings <laughs> to the plate. 
which I get, but it's also like, no, you have to, you have to have your jobs to hit. Like, yeah, not, no one's safe to go, you know, 10 for 10, but like you can't miss on three, four lottery picks. Like that's the, that's the job to say, well, but I'm admitting that I, like the job, that's not the job. Skluky. Like, no, that's none of us can do that in the world. That's not how this works. Um, so stuff like that is like, I agree with you. It's a funny gray area. It's a, it's a strange thing. It's a strange thing to talk about. Yeah, It's a, and I, and I'm curious, like what, what made you think, you know what, I, I gotta, I gotta take this chance and write this book now. Like, what made you dive in on, on this? Topic? Yeah, that's the way. So, so I live in New York, so I was, caught, so I needed like, you know, around then and still now sometimes, but like the Knicks and Nets, not much to write about. So I was kind of spending mm-hmm. more time in Philly, right, writing a little about them. Um, yeah, honestly, like I wish I had like it was more. <laughs> I wish I had more of a calling. It. I mean, <laughs> I was fascinated by the process and. And I thought it interesting, but I, I also wanted to write a book, and I thought this would be a good topic, and I was interested in the idea of kind of the politics of the NBA. Um, so I joke, like, I, I, you know, I said at the beginning, I did, did not, this is not Moneyball 2.0. Part of me did think at first, like, the book would be about how, you know, Sam Hinkie is a brilliant guy, uh, changed the NBA or whatever, and that was not what the book turned out to be, and I'm, I'm grateful and happy that it's not that. But I was, I was a little naive going in. Maybe that's how to explain it. Sure. I know, and I, and I you know, I appreciate the the sentiment of going in with one idea and then reporting right and and writing something else because that's that's how this works like i think we all that cover the league have our own mind about something and then once we dig a little deeper we find out it is something different like i can imagine you into this thinking okay this is a, a a basketball story and a great story about the changing you know way that you would build a team in the nba and you come out of it with a classic story of palace intrigue and backstabbing and sabotage, yeah, exactly. and, you know, like all of these things that maybe you didn't have in mind going in. Um, do, so let me ask you a couple about a couple different people, what you, sure. what you think of it and of them now at this stage, Brett Brown. Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised he survived to this point, your own. I'm, I'm, I really am because, you know, normally a team gets rid of the coach sooner rather than later, because he's the most expendable guy normally. Yeah, I mean, we just saw with Kenny Atkinson, right? That's a great example, right? Like, that is – Kenny Atkinson is Brett Brown, right? Like, that's the guy yes, – like, great it, example. He didn't, he didn't make it. I think I do – like, I, Brett probably benefited from all the other people around him that's like, okay, well, we got to keep this guy – we got to keep something stable, you know, like, with everything else going on. Um he benefited from that. I mean, it's like, well, two years ago, he was promoted to like interim president of basketball, you know, and Brian, when the uh, Twitter gate, ha- when Burger gate happens, um, my thoughts on Brett Brown, Brett Brown, like again, gray, right. Um, he gets, he's been through a lot. Like he's been through, like, if you look rattle off what things that a head coach has to deal with, I don't know. Like, I don't know, Brett, Brett's gold, silver and bronze medal. Right. Like it's not even, it's not even <laughs> comparison. Like, you know, it's, right. it's, it's, it's insane. Um, and, and the way the Sixers media policy often is, it's often him being left to uh, explain, you know, be a PR guy, which is not, you know, he's a basketball coach. Um, I do think that being said, I do think Brett has gotten a bit of a pass in terms of, he's, he's a little sharper than people realize, you know, behind the scenes. Like, I have some stories in the book about him yelling or cursing at people and things like that, which again, like, I don't, I think that's probably common among coaches, but Brett Brown's really good at being, he's really good in front of the media usually, you know, and he gives you long answers and he's friendly and he's, and he's, and he's articulate and interested and helpful. Um, but there's a different side to him. Yeah. I mean, 
It's coming out. We're recording this. I was just reading quotes from Jimmy Butler on JJ Reddick's podcast about Brett Brown, which would maybe be a different extreme. Um, but yeah, so again, there's a gray area there with Brett Brown, right? And it does seem like that. It does seem like he's in trouble in terms of um, will he be there long term? Yeah, it does. It seems like that's the next thing to drop. Number two on my list, I got a, and like I said, I got five five things, five specific hit things me, I was thinking me. about as I'm reading the book. Number two is is Joel Embiid. What do you make of Embiid at this point? I, I still love the the talent, and I'm intrigued by the talent, but I'm completely frustrated with the follow through. I just don't feel like he follows through at all on on his own promise to himself to be the best player he can be. Uh, I would agree. Yeah, I would agree. Like I, I'm going to come off as critical, but I guess like with a lot of the guys you're going to ask me about, probably because I feel like you know like. <laughs> I do feel like I did a little myth busting, right? And some of this stuff. Um, and like, yeah, and being one of those guys, right? The example I give, and I can, as a basketball fan, forget even as like a writer of this book, as a basketball fan, I was very, I'm so disappointed that, you know, they lose the way they did Toronto last year, literally by inches, right? And Embiid, you know, his body breaking down the entire series. He's sick. He's got the knee issue. Like literally, they the Sixers lose because the minute Embiid is off the floor, they can't, like they get, they have much points, right? And if there's ever, and he's crying after, he's emotional. And like, if there's ever a moment where a guy would say, you know what? I saw how close I am. Like, I'm going to lose 20 pounds and get in the best shape I can now. Like, that would be it. And that he didn't do that. It's just like, it almost reinforced. And I, I end the book kind of on an uplifting note about him that he had learned. And honestly, it doesn't look good, right? In hindsight, like, I was too forgiving. Um, <laughs> right? And it's like, and let's see, here the eating stories. And like, the stupid Chick-fil-A thing, the stupid Chick-fil-A thing where like, he has Landry Shaman or rookies get him like four sandwiches, four fries, and four shakes from Chick-fil-A. Um, and then he's claiming, you know, on podcast that like that part's made up and like, you know, I've had representatives tell me that's not true. It wasn't him eating it. I mean, I don't really get how that makes sense. Like, I don't know what the prank is about having the guy pick up the order, but then not having you eat when I guess I'm missing something there. Um, <laughs> right. So it's, so it's like, yeah, like I'm not saying like, listen, I, I just, yeah, I, I agree. The follow through, you phrased it perfectly. Like it's just, and who am I to say, you know, his life's pretty good. Right. So it, it depends what you want, but as a bad, like, so who am I to say, change what you're doing but as a if you're thinking from a basketball standpoint yeah he hasn't displayed that he's willing to put in the work to be great or to be the sort of leader to be great you know and yeah and, and he's and, ridiculously uh, talented i mean that that's right. the thing he's, he's beyond talented that is not up for debate and and that goes for number three on my list as well ben simmons who I, yeah. for some reason i find myself defending simmons more than any than anybody involved like I feel like Simmons is more maligned than anyone. And I and I think a lot of it is based on I watched it, the Showtime series he did before he got to the league when he was at LSU. Yeah. And his whole family was involved. And that colored my opinion of Ben Simmons probably more than it should have. I felt like, wow, this guy this guy got taken advantage of or you know, or didn't take advantage of the situation he was in at LSU. I mean, how he couldn't have made the tournament with that team, the NCAA tournament, was was unbelievable to me. I'm thinking, how in the world could a player this good not lead a team to the NCAA tournament? That just didn't make sense. So then I'm then I'm thinking about, okay, so he gets dropped into this process with the Sixers, where he's kind of the secondary piece automatically because you know yeah. I didn't feel like he went to a clean slate where he gets to come in and establish himself as the the tent pole rookie. And maybe I'm being too nice to Ben Simmons. Maybe I'm being too forgiving. 
No, it's like, and you know, again, talking about right. So I write the book a year. Like it, it's, I finished writing it a year ago, right? It's coming out now or whatever. Like this season would sort of back up a lot of your set. Like he plays hard, right? And he seems to work, and he's done better. The, the, but again, like <laughs> when you kind of ask me, not villains, but just like this, there's something. I'll say weird or hanging over every every person in the story, and like the jump shooting thing is crazy. It's crazy. The nuts. fact that what what do you say? It's nuts. I know guys who are horrible shooters that shoot all the time. So I'm saying that's I don't get right. That's I agree. Like people don't, don't always make the Rondo comparison, and I'm always like, no, you can't compare Rondo because Rondo would shoot. Rondo wasn't a great shooter, but like he would shoot when he's open and it ended up being his shooting numbers are pretty good because he would take open jumpers. Right. Like it's not, we've literally, I, like there's li- I don't know if in NBA history, like there really might not, like we've literally never seen somebody like this who will literally not shoot the ball. Right. And, 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 and the work, like, you know, first of all, two parts on it. One, he can shoot a little bit. He's not great, but like you watch pregame, he can hit a corner three there, here and there. Um, but then, like, you know, in the book, I have stories, like, he's working with a shooting coach, and then they come back, and they decide, no, his uh, half-brother is going to – they come back in the summer, and no, his half-brother is going to be a shooting coach, like, which is just crazy. And that kind of goes back to Brett Brown, where Brett Brown's saying yes, and I guess – I mean, I guess there's a whole different discussion on player empowerment and who runs the franchise and things like that. But, like, in what world does a guy like Ben Simmons have his half-brother who's, like, a B, maybe a low-level D1 assistant at that point? Like, he is a shooting coach. Just, that's unheard of. Um so yeah, it's just fascinating. And I remember we saw it this year, right? Like with Brett's press conference comment when he goes, "Tell his brother and his agent, I want to see a three every game." And and I think and Ben hasn't taken one since, which kind of tells you all you need to know about who's in charge there, right? Like it's just it's just fascinating. It's fascinating. I don't even know. Like I don't know what, 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 what was the question? I remember just I can go on on Ben no, the shooting thing. It's the strangest exactly. thing. It's the strangest thing. Exactly. It's just the subterfuge involved in this whole thing to me is unbelievably, you know, uh, interesting for people who care about the league. And it's like, you don't yeah. have to be a Sixers fan to care about this. I don't think it's just about the Sixers anymore. Number four on my list is Markel Fultz, who I, I find myself giving a complete pass to now as opposed to the arrows I was shooting at him when he was with the Sixers. I was convinced. Yeah. I was like, this dude should have never been the number one pick. He's not. He's nowhere near as talented. The scouts got bamboozled. And, this and, the other. and then I watch him now in Orlando. And I'm like, okay, I, I can, I see the talent. I see why people were so excited about him. Um, and I almost feel like he got done wrong. You know, like they shipped him out of there before he got a chance to redeem himself in Philly. But you know what's weird? So when you watch him, though, but I agree with you, except, well, no, it, I agree that it shows the talent, but he's also still not shooting, right? Which is, and he still can't shoot. Yeah. And it's like, it almost makes the story more strange. I know, you know, Markel, he's positioned this as like, he had a shoulder injury and he's recovered from it and all that. But man, he still doesn't shoot and he still can't shoot. Like if you watch him warm up, it doesn't look like his old shot and coming out of college, he could shoot. And it's funny, <clears throat> excuse me. Like what you're saying is you're like, you're seeing, right. You're seeing the talent, like the big guard getting the lane at will and the spin moves and the strong finishes and yeah. like the sense to dump it off. Like you can see, where it's almost, you can see the guy Brian Colangelo thought he was trading for, right? And like how that guy would be a perfect right, fit if he could shoot next to Simmons and Embiid. Um, yeah, I mean, the fault story is like messy. And like, you know, I have, I have stuff in the book about how his relationship with his mom, his best friend, and his coach. And like, at one scene where he's crying, saying, I should have left, you should have left me in college. The money's doing this. And you never know. I know, like, the faults and his camp push back on any idea, any notion that this is more than just a shoulder injury. Um, they refuse to admit it. It's a, and 
Maybe they're right. I, I, I don't know, but just it's a messy situation. Like the context I would give is, you know, Markel Fultz, when he was a sophomore, he was playing JV basketball. He's not like, I compare him to Ben Simmons, who was groomed to be a number one pick basically from the age of like 12, right? Markel Fultz was not that. Stardom was a new thing for him and his family, and stardom could be hard for a lot of people to deal with. Yeah, I mean, he, I, I think about other players around the league now who weren't, um, you know, McDonald's All-Americans in, in training since they were 10 years old. You know, Giannis was mm-hmm. nowhere on anybody's radar. Uh, there have yeah. been some fantastic stories. Pascal Siakam, you know, another one where they take the same elements that Fultz is dealing with and have used them to fuel all-star yeah. bids and, you know, and championships and MVPs. And for whatever reason, Fultz had almost – it's like it's – to me, it's like a burden for him that he was the number one pick. Like it does know, look like it, right? It's come to it on him, yes. It's just, I mean, it's, like I said, it makes this entire story even more crazy. And the and the last group on my list, and I had to group them all together because I think I don't think you could single one of them out. And it's Philly ownership in in their front office. I mean, um, I don't know what to make of. Of, of how they even feel about where they are right now and, and what they think is the best path to whatever end they're, they, they're seeking. I mean, I, obviously they want to be a championship team, but who makes the calls and who's who's got the most influence? You know, you know as well as I do, there are a lot of instances where an owner might not be as vocal publicly, but might be doing so much behind the scenes that he's the one, you know, or or he or she or that group is the one that's that's doing all the directing of traffic unbeknownst to the public. I don't I don't I don't know if I can get a good handle on what's going on in Philly. And I met Scott O'Neill years ago. Um and I really <laughs> yeah. liked him. I mean they have some bright, interesting people, some that have been good to to the press and to you, I could tell in this book. I don't I don't know how much cooperation did you get from the Sixers at all, if anything, in terms of going about this topic. Uh, the answer, what's less than zero, right? Zero plus plus, <laughs> uh, plus defense of other people I was trying to call. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, uh, you know, I can promise the book does not involve favors to people on background. You know, I'm talking about background. That I can, right. that I can promise. No, it's fine. I told a story like they would say no. They would call former employees to remind them of the NDAs they had in their contracts or their buyouts. Um, wow. One play, one player I set up a conversation with, and, you know, I go to him doing the book. He said, I'll give you an hour whenever you need. I go back to him a month later. He goes, yeah, I was told I can't do any book interviews. Sorry. Um, so that, um, but you're asking me, yeah, the front office, it's like funny, right? So somebody asked me yesterday, if I could have anything on truth serum, like if I could put them on truth serum, what would be the question I want answered? And that, that's the mm-hmm. answer now is like, who's running basketball things. And they would say Elton, they would push back and say Elton. But then I think they would also say, but you know, with input from ownership and this and that, and then like you get back in a circle where it comes like, okay, but then so let's go back to our question, right? Who's, who's making the basketball decisions? The, uh, yeah. I, I think I, I really do think, and it's more than it's, I, I'll call it an educated thinking. I don't know. That's not good English, but you know, just I, ownership and Josh Harris are, uh, are the ones right. pushing for a lot of the things. That's my read on the situation. Yeah, because I, I feel like, and, and maybe this is a, a misinterpretation on my part, but I feel like their ownership group, like a lot of new ownership, you know, uh, contingents in this league, they come in with this idea that, hey, we're going to, we're going to apply all of our 
successful practices that we've used to yeah. get here to the league, and that'll work because we're so smart and we're so sharp, and we've got this fresh idea about how to do it. And, I'm, and I say to myself, as a person who's been around this league for nearly two decades and watched every possible iteration of 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 how to reinvent the league go up in flames like i watch yeah. i've watched every time somebody comes in thinking they got it figured out with this new approach or the, you know this fresh approach and they get burned i mean i watched mark cuban beat his head against the wall for years thinking yeah all the things he would do differently that would lead to a championship not do it and then finally when he got a team that was seasoned enough mean enough with a superstar player in in the sweet spot they won a championship like he could try all these different things, but he wanted just like every other team's wanted, with a little bit of luck, right. some really good planning, and the right players at the right times. Like it doesn't change. No, I agree. Like, like bringing, like, yeah. If you want to say, you know, we do critical thinking in my field, the way to bring that, like, God bless. Even analytical thinking, I God bless. But no, I agree. I think these guys, you know, the NBA is just a different beast, a different animal. It's not like any other business for a host of reasons. Like. You know, mix up. One example I give is you have competitors, you're competing with different teams, but you're also partners with them. Like, just the whole setup is different. Like, it's just everything you can't compare. Or Josh Harris himself had it said it funny, like at Sloan, I think it was last year. And I love this quote. He goes, I don't have the exact, but, you know, we own this $2 billion chemical company that nobody cares about. And, like, I, this company is known as, like, one of the, in private equity, like, one of the legendary private equity transactions that they ever did. Because we, we have this company no one cares about, but everybody has an opinion about the Sixers starting lineup. And, like, that stuff, <laughs> right? And that stuff, and like, these guys care what people think, and they hear that stuff. They can pretend they don't, but they do. Like, they, they do hear, and they do care, and they do pay attention, and that influences them and affects them. And, yeah, like, it doesn't, it's just a saying, I agree, it doesn't work. And, like, it's interesting, so when Josh Harris buys the team in 2011, 2012, you know, he refers to it as a really good business opportunity. That's what he said. Um, now you hear him talk about it. He talks almost as if like, he's like on the dais when they're introducing Josh Harris and they're introducing Tobias Harris and Al Horford last year. He's like introducing them and explaining why the starting five works schematically. Right. It's like you get, these guys guy into it. It makes you different. You're like, you're involved in an NBA team. You're not just another rich guy. And I think he likes being a GM, but I agree with you. Right. There was, there was definitely a thinking that, Oh, we're going to bring our thoughts, you know, to, this organization and to be fair to them and complimentary, like from a business standpoint, they've pretty much done that. Like I think they bought it for 250 million and I think the last Forbes ranking was 2 billion, right? Like they've done a lot of interesting, innovative things from a business standpoint, but when it comes to building a winning team, it's just, it, it, it's apples and oranges. Yeah. The basketball part always hits a snag. I don't care who it is. Yep. Um, you know, I don't care what organization it is, that at some point or another, they realize, oh, you know, what we thought is not what it is. And somebody with a basketball mindset and with an understanding of how this works has to be involved in that process. So it's, yeah, this is one of my favorite, I, I, literally wrestling with myself. I, I'd read, you know, 40 pages, close it, walk around, you know, yelling. <laughs> you know, pissed about something because it, it brought up memories of things that I thought, like I, I'll never understand the Dario Sarge thing, and I won't even drag you into that. For for <laughs> years, John Schumann and I were were debating whether or not Dario Sarge would be able to come over and be in, uh, you know a key piece for the season. So funny, <laughs> and we heard so much hype about him, like so much 
there was all of this, you know, if you talk to scouts and people who are well-versed in the European game, they were telling you, like, man, Sharich is going to be great in the league. He's going to be the ideal glue player, blah, blah, blah. And then he comes over, does exactly what people say he's going to do, and they, and they run him out of town. They're like, they, right. they toss him aside <laughs> like nothing. And I'm like, what the world? You know, that's the frustrating part about what they've done in Philly to me that, that really makes take it to the top a, a must read. I mean, you got to read this if you care at all about the league and have paid attention to it at all. So great stuff from you, Jerome. Um, seriously, I, uh, I really appreciate that. Book, no, man. thank you. I appreciate all the kind words. And yeah, I agree. Good stuff. No, no, I agree. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff for us. But look, and all you got to do is now just think in about five more years, you come back with part two because there'll be, there'll be another book's worth of crap that goes on between now and the next five seasons. There's no question have, about that. I have no <laughs> doubt. The Sixers never let us down in terms of, uh, in terms of narrative and drama. That is true. That is for sure. <laughs> no question, man. Listen, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Seiko. Once again, we need to thank your own Weitzman for coming on the Hang Time Podcast this week, talking about his fantastic book, A Page Turn. Taking to the top, the Philadelphia 76ers, and the most audacious process in the history of professional sports. You must read this book. Got to get your hands on it and check it out. Whole lot of everything going on, as always, in the basketball world, whether there are games on or not. And uh, we'll be here to bring it to you as best we can. Take care of yourself, and we'll see you right here next week on the Hang Time Podcast. This one is done, but in case you want another one, here's the link to all the fun from Sekou Smith's Hang Time Run. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NBA.com slash Hangtime, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, Hoops fans.